Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at LSE, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the school for a talk this evening by Professor John Van Rienen on the topic of uh, restoring growth. And John's delivering this lecture as part of the 21st birthday celebrations of the Centre for Economic Performance, uh, which he now directs. I think Professor Layard is here, who was the previous director down at the front here of CEP. And uh, I'll say a few words, of course, about John in a moment, and I'll say something also about CEP. Uh, John will speak for about 60 minutes, and then we'll take questions. Now is the time, please, to turn off all mobile phones and other irritating devices. Um, just a word or two about CEP, if I might, first. Uh, the Centre for Economic Performance was founded in 1990 with money from the Economic and Social Research Council here in the UK. And I think it's very obvious that its contributions to public life and policy since its founding really fly in the face of claims that circulate nowadays that only STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and maths have some kind of public benefit. Uh, the Centre's research in the 1990s on long-term unemployment for much of the intellectual basis that underpinned New Labour's New Deal, the Working Families Tax Credit and the Minimum Wage. Its work on skills, especially numeracy, formed the basis for the National Skills Audit and the Reform of Apprenticeship, and its staff have consistently worked to engage key policymakers to have an impact in the new lexicon. Uh, Richard Layard at the front, for example, has advised the Department of Education and Skills on the New Deal. Stephen Nickell, Charles Bean, Willem Boiter served on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. David Metcalf on the Low Pay Commission. Paul Gregg on the Chancellor's Council of Economic Advisers. And the list uh, goes on. Uh, Tony Venables, who's now at Oxford, uh, was uh, for a while the Chief Economist at DFID. John Van Rienen, who's giving tonight's talk, is also, in addition, of course, to being the current director of CEP, uh, one of LSE's leading economists. And this is a university, of course, where one of our colleagues, Professor Chris Pissarides, uh, has recently shared in the award of this year's Nobel Memorial Prize for Economic Science. Uh, John studied for his BA at Cambridge in economics, then came to, to LSE for his master's, again in economics, uh, before he moved up the road to UCL for his PhD and his first teaching jobs. Uh, by the time that John came back to LSE in 2003, he'd also served as a policy advisor to number 10 Downing Street, 1999 to 2000, particularly on the topics, I think, of education, enterprise and tax. John's worked as a research fellow at the Institute of Fiscal Studies uh, when he was at UCL and was a partner in 2001-2002 in a private company, Lexicon. Uh, John is currently on the editorial board of the Journal of Economic Literature, which of course is one of the leading journals in economics. He was a visiting professor at Stanford in 2008-2009, and this year was elected a fellow of the British Academy. Uh, in addition, and if that wasn't quite enough, John was the winner in 2009 of the Janssen Prize for the best economist in Europe under the age of 40, uh, which is the equivalent over here, I believe. 45, actually. 45. <laughs> Damn. 45. Uh, the equivalent over here, more or less, then, I think, of the Bates Clark Medal 
in, in the United States. So, uh, John, we're delighted that you're here tonight to talk to us, and we look forward to, tell, uh, to what you can tell us about the difficult task of restoring growth. Well, I'm not uh, sure I can live up to that introduction. I, f I feel particularly uh, embarrassed to be coming here since the uh, first lecture in our series by, was, was by Olivier Blanchard, who is the chief economist of, uh, of the IMF, who actually uh, you know, gave us a stunning, uh, stunning lecture. So um, I'm going to try and uh, continue in that vein, although I think uh, I'm going to focus much more than Olivier did on the challenges facing the UK economy, and particularly the challenge of uh, the lecture tonight, which is on looking at uh, growth. So, um, as, uh, as Stuart said, this is part of a, a 21st birthday series of, uh, of the CEP. Uh, we were founded in, in 1990 at the start of uh, a recession. A lot of the early work which was done was during the recession of the early 1990s. And one of the themes of that was indeed on, on growth, on, on productivity growth. So this lecture really continues in the same tradition of the CEP thinking of growth. and. Uh, Work by uh, Chris Bissarides, Richard Layard, Charlie Bean, our deputy, deputy, deputy of, uh, of the Bank of England, uh, has uh, ha you know, made fundamental contributions there. What, we're tr what we've learned, some of the new things I'm going to present tonight, are based on some new findings, uh, new data, where we'd be able to get much more under the skin of growth, looking at microeconomic data, and trying to draw some of the kind of policy conclusions from that. So um, I'm going to try and convince you that uh, here are three sources of growth. Uh, three great captains of uh, global industry from the retail sector on the far right to the manufacturing sector on, on the left in the US and the UK. And that it's very important when we think of the sources of growth to think of growth not just in terms of uh, technology, although that's going to be very important, but also in terms of management practices in both in terms of good bosses and also in terms of three examples of very bad bosses. And what can we do to try and actually stimulate the good and uh, reduce uh, the bad? So just to remind you about where we are now at the, at the present time. So what this graph does is look at uh, five major recessions. And on the, uh, on, the, on the vertical axis, it plots out the cumulative fall of national output, of GDP, during those recessions. So um, the black line that you can see here is the kind of recession that we've just been through, starting in 2008. The, uh, the red line is the 1930s Great Depression. Uh, and the other lines are the, the green lines, the 80s recession, and we have the 70s and the 90s recession. So when you look at this, um, you know, one of the things you notice is that we seem to be you know, in the recovery period, although we haven't recovered all the way back to where we were. Um, but it's worth looking at how bad things actually were. So a year into the recession, the fall of GDP, something like six and a half percentage points, was worse than it was in the Great Depression of the 1930s. So you know, in the midst of this uh, position that we were in, we really were, I think, as, uh, as, as uh, Eddie Lazier, who was uh, George Bush's Council of Economic Advisors, said to me once, we felt like we were stirring over the edge of the ab abyss. It was very, very serious. And the recovery, as fragile as I think it still is, 
um, was in, in large part, I think, to the fact that we didn't make the same mistakes, policy mistakes, that we made in the, in the 1930s. In particular, the decision to recapitalize the banks and the financial system, the decision to have a loose monetary policy, keep interest rates low, have quantitative easing, and finally, and this is something I'm going to return to, the decision not to uh, balance the books, to cut spending and, and raise taxes in the middle of a recession, but rather to have uh, a stimulus, either directly as in the US or UK, or indirectly through automatic stabilizers, uh, as in other countries, um, and also, you know, for example, to reduce the rate of VAT, to maintain relatively high levels of spending, well, factors which enabled us to avoid, or seem to avoid, a very bad outcome indeed. And I, and I, and I think that's, it's worth not forgetting that. A lot of people have amnesia that you know, we had a very close call, and uh, I think that the recovery that we're in is, is in large part due to that, and we have to be very careful not to uh, make the mistake of, of choking off some of that recovery with uh, premature, premature policies. And that's a theme I'm going to return to. So when we, when we uh, think about this, what are the questions we ask? Well, there's a fundamental question, which is what is the driver of growth? I mean, what are the, what are the factors which could help us return to robust and stable growth? And two proximate causes of that are technological innovation, and I'm going to argue management practices. And the question is, well, how can we grow and stimulate those, uh, those, those things in order to help, help boost our growth? A second question is, are the current government's accelerated budget cuts the right medicine in order to put us on a sustainable path? I'm going to argue that on balance, I think um, they are not. Um, and it's worth, it's worth um, you know, having the back of your mind. The question is not, should we have budget consolidation? We have to. And we have to. We have um, a, a problem of uh, debt and debt in this country. The question is the speed and severity with which we do that. And I think the the speed and severity of which we're doing in this country, the, the experiment we're going through, is uh, is too fast. I think it, it actually, and argue, will harm the economy. And finally, at the end, I want to come back to this question of how we can rebalance the UK economy. The economy was out of balance. I mean, both within the private sector, between financial services and construction and manufacturing, um, and the argument we, about rebalancing between the private and, and the public sector. Okay, so here's the outline of the talk. First, I'm going to talk a bit about productivity. That's the kind of fundamental issue of growth. Then over why there is a productivity gap in the UK. Talk about some of the drivers of better management of productivity. And then finally, talk about policy, both micro policy in terms of structural reforms and macro policy in terms of um, um, budget austerity and its implications. So what is productivity and why should, why should we care about it? Um, I mean, people, when people talk about growth, they often talk in a very loose way about absolute growth or the absolute size of the economy as if that by itself was a good thing. And that clearly is, 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 a, is a fallacy. From an economic point of view, I mean, what we really care about is productivity growth. Um, the fact that the economy as a whole is getting bigger is not necessarily a benefit to the people in, in the economy. I mean, the fact you can get bigger by higher population growth or more immigration, that by itself is not a good thing. It might give you a good feeling to be in a big and growing country, and it might be, you know, make you more economically powerful. But from a kind of a welfare point of view, what people care about really is, you know, what's happening to them as an individual and their families. Um, and productivity growth, 
or the amount of output per hour per person um, or how much output you can get for your, your inputs, that's what economists call total factor productivity, is the really key thing here. Um, that drives the growth of real wages and people's consumption. Um, and also, it facilitates potential redistribution. If you care about redistribution, if it's not just about you getting better off, you care about other people getting better off, redistribution is a lot easier to do in the context of a pie which is expanding rather than a pie which stays the same was contracting. If the pie is the same size, if you want to redistribute, one person has to be worse off. Whereas if the pie is expanding, you can actually, everybody can be better off without actually making somebody worse off. So redistribution can actually be facilitated by, um, by, by productivity growth and expansion. Um, there are potential downsides to it. Some people say that you know, the problem with faster productivity growth is that uh, it's inequitous, that it's going to increase poverty. And again, I think that's a bit of a fallacy because certainly in terms of absolute levels of po poverty, having faster productivity growth is going to lift people out of absolute poverty. I mean, that's clearly the, the path to, to, to developments around the world. In terms of relative poverty or inequality, um, there's an ambiguous relationship between inequality and growth. I don't, I don't think there's any reason from a theoretical point of view, and certainly not from an empirical point of view, that faster growth has to cause faster inequality. Quite, quite the opposite in many cases. Well, actually, if you think about the possibilities of redistribution, I think it's actually much easier in the context of, of, a growing, of a growing economy where people are getting on average wealthier. Um, a, a greater challenge, and this is a challenge that Richard Layard has raised and in many of, uh, many of his, uh, his work is on happiness. So that's the issue about does increases in our consumption or our wages actually lead to greater degrees of satisfaction? And that's, that, and that's a much more challenging question. And certainly it does seem to be after... Um, a particular level of income or a particular uh, level of growth of an, an economy, the additional increments to growth seem to be less important. I think there are, there are two, um, you know, there are some concerns with that. Obviously, there's an issue about how you measure people's happiness and satisfaction. That's quite challenging. And I also think that, you know, when you think about, um, you know, the issue of redistribution, there are plenty of people who are below that level of income, whereas if you could redistribute towards them through growth, that could actually make them a lot better off. And finally, of course, I think we'd all agree that negative levels of growth or serious reductions in growth, as, as, as we've seen, are, are going to be a cause of unhappiness. And I always fall back on the uh, wisdom of my auntie, who always said to me, uh, money indeed doesn't buy you happiness, but it makes your misery a lot easier to bear. Uh, so I think that is a, is a good uh, motto to keep in mind if, you, if, you, uh, if you're concerned about does, uh, does growth actually lead to happiness. So let's look at some numbers. So this just um, is uh, one measure of productivity, uh, GDP per hour. And um, I've normalized the UK to be 100. Uh, sorry, um, I've normalized the US to be 100 and looked at uh, other countries' relative GDP per hour in comparison to that. So you can see the red uh, bar here shows the UK's position. The UK is something like 12% 12, 12 less productive, less output per hour than the US. Uh, France and Germany in between, and Italy and Japan somewhat behind. So, you know, that's a, a relatively sizable gap. Um, you know, to put it in context, uh, if we could raise our productivity to US levels, then that could mean we could take Friday afternoon off and go down the pub rather than having to spend our time working. Uh, most people would think that was a good thing. Many people, of course, say that's why British productivity is lower because we are spending our time down the pub on a Friday afternoon. Now, of course, we hope to me if we measured that properly, that wouldn't, wouldn't be the case. But uh, clearly, you know, if we could uh, expand, you know, our, our, our productivity growth, there is a there is a certain price to be to be won there. 
So this is what's happened, you know, this is just the, what's happened at the point of time. What's kind of more interesting is what's, ha what's happened over time. So if we look at over time, this is the, the same kind of graph. Um, the, um, the bars here, I've normalized the UK to be 100 here, and I've looked at other countries, so France, Germany, and the US. So, um, for example, if you take 1997, and you look at um, where France was, France has you know, something like 10% um, uh, or so, well, let's, let's start with Germany. Germany has something like 4% uh, higher productivity in, in, the, in, the, in the UK in 1997, but by 2007, that uh, gap had uh, reversed, so output per worker was actually higher in Britain than it was in, in, in Germany. The difference between the output per hour and output per Germany is that Germans work less hours on average than Brits do. If we look at France, you can also see that there's been some improvement in the UK's position. So the UK has narrowed the gap with France by, it was about 13% less productive in 97, now it's about 10% less productive. So over time, the UK, although it's, uh, you know, it, it's less productive than many of our competitors, has actually improved. The green line is the United States. So the, if you look at the green line, output per worker in the US is about 20% higher than it is in the UK. And that gap hasn't changed. So you might say, well, we've improved our position against the Europeans, but you know, the US has managed to stay ahead. Now, the reason that that is still a, you know, somewhat of an impressive performance is that this period between 97 and 2007 was the period of the so-called US productivity miracle. So if you look at the history of productivity since the Second World War, um, the US is the productivity leader coming out of the Second World War, and European countries were gradually starting to catch up. In the 1970s, the oil shock slowed productivity growth down across, across the world. So the US productivity growth was something like 1.2%. But from the mid-1990s, US productivity growth more or less doubled. So it doubled to about 2.3% in the decade from 1995. And um, you know, if you look at the causes of that, um, some, of, some of the factors that people think are important are things like the growth of technology, the, IC, the revolution of information technology, um, and also the growth of the internet. All these factors seem to uh, be very important for US productivity growth. So the fact that the UK has managed to keep up with that is actually um, quite an impressive performance, in my opinion. Now, of course, after 2007, the crisis uh, emerged, and productivity growth has slowed down in, in all countries. Uh, interestingly, you know, it's slowed down to a different rate. So the US, it's slowed down less than other countries, but that partly reflects the fact that uh, jobs have fallen a lot more in the US than they have in other countries. So that kind of artificially inflates the US's position. But you can see across all countries, productivity growth has somewhat slowed. But the UK's uh, performance over that 10-year you know, period was actually uh, you know, a period of, of some degree of improvement. So the last, uh, the 2009 position shows what's happened. The US has, has moved ahead a bit. The position in France and Germany has more or less stayed the same. Um, how does that compare with what happened over the previous, uh, the, the previous um, period since, since 1979? Um, so you can see that um, what happens between uh, 1979 and 1997 is that France actually gradually caught up and overtook the UK. That's the blue line. And um, between 1979, the kind of early Thatcher period, um, the, U the UK actually managed to bridge some of the gap with the US, and it stayed the same since then. So some improvements between in, in, the, uh, in the 80s, um, some you know, fallbacks in, in the late 80s period, and you know, some improvements in the, in the post-Labor the post period after 97.
So what, what lay behind some of the UK's improved productivity position post-97? So one thing you might think is, well, it's just due to an unsustainable boom in the financial sector. Um, and the financial sector did, as we know, do well over that period. However, the vast majority of the increase of productivity took place outside the financial sector in the US and the UK. So in particular, if you look at the retail and wholesale sector, that had very strong productivity growth. But part of it, I think, was also due to other, um, you know, other kind of fundamental factors. One is that if you look at um, human capital, um, or you know, education, that um, actually had an had a improved performance uh, over this period. So if you look at the proportion of uh, UK workers with a college degree, that rose by something like 12 percentage points between 1997 and 2010. So if we think about that, and I, and I argue this is very important, that people's skills are a key part of what's going on, there was some uh, improvement over, over the post-97 period. Um, research and development, and again I'll show you some evidence on this in a second, was also important. This was supported both directly and also by you know, um, R&D tax credits. Um, and there was some improvement, I think, in product market competition, but in particular some of the changes in the competition policy regime, the UK now being ranked second in the world in terms of its competition policy. But also, and just as important, there was a continuation of many policies, I think, which have been useful for productivity. So labour market flexibility, open to investments, and also uh, labour market support by welfare reform. So as Stuart mentioned, um, things like the New Deal, which I think are very important in terms of raising employment, have also been a, a good part of the overall package. Maybe not so much for productivity, but certainly in terms of keeping employment rates uh, higher than they would have been. So a bit of evidence for that, if you look at employment rates in the UK for adults, then um, over this period, um, the employment rate rose. Um, fell very dramatically, fell in the recession, although not as badly as you might think, given the size of the recession. Um, so one of the, the benefits, I think, of welfare reformers has helped us deal with the recession. And the employment rate has actually managed to be relatively high. In fact, by international standards, much higher than our European neighbours. So why, but you know, despite you know, some of those um, improvements, there remains this productivity gap. And the question is, well, why is there a productivity gap? And, and uh, you know, what, what's the kind of causes of that? So, you know, one view is, uh, and you know, most of my, my early work kind of shares this, is that the productivity gap is mainly due to technology. And, you know, there is some truth in that. So if you, uh, the UK does, I think, have some innovation deficit compared to other countries. Um, this deficit is not in basic science. So if you look at universities, um, then our basic science is actually pretty good. So in terms of our ratio of paper citations or number of papers to GDP, we actually are actually the highest of the group of eight nations. So we're very good at elite science, but we're much worse at translating those results of elite science into research and development, into innovations and commercialized, uh, commercialized patents. So you know, just to give you a bit of numbers on that, so if you look at, say, the share of scientific papers in the world, um, you know, one of the, you know, this, this is of top scientific papers, the top 1% of all cited papers. The UK is second only to the US with about 14%, so that's a you know, pretty good performance. And of course, per dollar spend, that you know, puts us in an even better performance. Um, research and development, however, which has more to do with how, the, how those are commercialised and taken forward by the private sector, the UK is in a much worse position. So in 1987, for example, this is the ratio of R&D to national output or GDP, the UK was lower than US, Japan, Germany, France, and was higher only than Canada. Um, in 1997, the US, whereas most other countries, increased the R&D intensity, 
the UK actually decreased. So we spent less of our national output in research and development, falling even behind uh, Canada. Almost, it was about equal to Canada. Since then, since uh, going to 2007, um, the UK has kind of improved to some degree. It certainly halted the decline. Um, most other countries have, uh, have, have increased a little bit, or at least stabilised. But the UK still is, you know, much further below the US and, and uh, other countries in this in this dimension. So that's just one example of patenting data kind of tells the same story. So there is an issue of technology, but I think technology isn't the only thing. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to argue in, in the rest of this lecture, I think that um, the problem isn't just with these kind of hard technologies, also with the way that firms are managed. So many of the kind of, you know, if you look over the last hundred years, there have been many other innovations uh, which are managerial innovations. So, for example, Toyota, with its introduction of lean manufacturing and reducing, reducing inventories and continuous improvement, that was a major innovation in the car manufacturing industry. It took many decades before that spread out to other, other countries. Scientific management, mass production, these are also important uh, managerial innovations which can have, have improvements in productivity. The problem with this, of course, and uh, you know, people in business schools have struggled with this for a long time, is how on earth do you quantify and compare management practices across countries? So I'm going to show you some, some research we've been doing and trying to get a handle on this elusive thing that we call management. And of course, you know, it raises the question, well, why don't all, if these management practices are so good, why don't all firms immediately adopt them? And I think the reason that they don't is very similar to um, why people don't immediately adopt new hard technologies, such as hybrid corn or information technologies or beta blockers. It takes a, you know, it, typically if you, there's a diffusion curve for these things. Not everybody adopts them at the same time. And the same kind of things which affect hard technologies can also have effects on, on the kind of softer technologies like management. So issues of getting the information about what the right thing to do is, what's the right incentives you have to adopt them, you know, have you got the human capital, the education and skills to adopt them. And I'm going to show you some evidence that those things are important in explaining management. So how do you measure management? So very quickly, uh, this is the kind of methodology Nick Bloom and I have, have been developing to try and get a handle on management. So the first thing, you've got to kind of develop some questions over you know, what are important parts of management. We have, uh, we've boiled this down to kind of 18 questions. Um, this, this doesn't come out of anywhere, this comes out of talking to many people in the industry and, and international management consultancies. And these questions around, I'll give you some examples of those, monitoring what goes on in the production line, lean manufacturing, um, you know, set, setting sensible targets, not ridiculously hard targets and neither ridiculously easy ones, how you manage your people, promotions, rewards and so on. That set of things um, are important for in terms of management. We then use, a, we have a 45 minute interview of a manufacturing plant managers um, and people in other sectors now to try and implement this. Um, how do we get people to tell the truth? Don't people lie to you? Um, we, so the way we try and get close to the truth is we have what's called a double blind technique. So when we're interviewing these managers, um, the people doing the interviews know nothing about the company's performance. So that means that they don't, you know, obviously if you're interviewing a firm you think is a great firm, then you're gonna give that a high score. Um, by not knowing anything about the company performance, we reduce that bias. And almost as importantly, the managers who are being interviewed don't know that they're being scored 
across these different 18 best practices. So um, they, what, what the managers think they're having is a friendly conversation with the MBA students. Um, in the background, the students is rigorously scoring the manager depending on these answers to the questions across these different dimensions. You might say, how on earth do we get to this eth the ethics committee? And the, uh, the reason the ethics committee uh, thought this was, was justifiable was through the well-known psychological um, evidence that you know, if people think, you know, if people know that you're scoring them on some dimension, they're going to give you the answers that they, they, that they think you're looking for. So in order to avoid that bias, uh, we deliberately you know, kept the managers blind on the other side. Now they, they get some information after the interview is over, when we, give, we send them a pack so they, they, they know afterwards some information about what's going on. But it's very important that they're kind of blind on both sides when this is being done. We ran this from LSE, we can have the same training, the same country rotation. Uh, this helps a lot in terms of getting consistent, consistent answers. What if people ever participate in these interviews? We have about 8,500 of these interviews now from 20 countries around the world. Um, the way we, we get a pretty high response rate, something like 45%. The way we do that is we introduce this as a lean manufacturing interview. We don't ask them any financial information. We get all the financial information from other data sources. We got uh, endorsement for our study from uh, respected outfits like the Bundesbank and uh, the, uh, the, the Treasury. Um, so that helps to assure people this is not some marketing scam going on. Um, different countries react in different ways. So uh, in Germany, we would send, we would fax people the letter from the Bundesbank with the eagle crest of the Bundesbank and the Germans being very uh, uh, serious and uh, authority respecting people would respond very well to that. Um, in America, when we talk to people and mention the government, the phone gets slammed down and uh, words like communist and red and liberal and things get shouted at us. So we learned that when we were interviewing the American companies, not to use the government names, the Americans responded a lot better to the fact that these are MBA types who are actually you know, doing, doing their interviews. So we also, we have about a, a team of about 55 MBAs who did this, and any of you who have taught MBAs who come across them know uh, they're loud, assertive people, that we had, they all have business experience, they don't like taking no for an answer, this helped us get a pretty good response rate. So these are the type of questions we ask. So on the monitoring section, what we're looking for are firms, um, you know, who who are, um, who are not, who are either good or bad, a one is a bad score, a five is a good score. A bad score, a one would be where measures of performance are not tracked, then nothing through the business uh, objective, certain processes aren't tracked at all. To a high score, where performance is kind of tracked and communicated continuously to all staff. So, you know, one of the things that we would ask, um, and, and visually as well, so one of the things we would ask, we ask these open questions such as, you know, what do you track? And people would talk to us, and we'd score them based on their answers. We'd say, well, if you're walking around the factory floor, tell me, you know, would you see any of these indicators? And a good, a good, a good kind of uh, measure of that is whether or not uh, people actually show what these scores are. If they're all kept locked away in the office, that's not a, that's not a, a very good way of actually performance tracking, communicating that. And then we have a series of questions on the other things that I mentioned. Uh, they're all on our website if you're interested. Another one is on, uh, say, promotions, for example. So um, a good practice of promotions is to do appraisals to try and promote people based on ability and effort. A bad practice would be if you just promote people if they're related to you or purely on the basis of tenure, ignoring their efforts or ability. So that would be an example of promotion and we, we, run, we have a whole series of those. 
So um, what we end up with after this is about 8,500 firms across the Americas, Asia, and Europe. Um, we have a pretty good response rate of 45%. The answers are uncorrelated with performance measures. We focused in the, in the first uh, parts of our work on manufacturing firms. The typical firm is about 250 employees. We haven't got the huge firms or the very small firms. Um, very small firms, there's very little data, and these, these kind of measures are more formal, so they're not so relevant. Very large firms, you have just too many plants to actually interview, and interview one or two of them. We started manufacturing because it's easier to measure productivity. But subsequently, we've actually um, interviewed firms in many sectors, hospitals, schools, retail, law firms, nursing homes, and many other sectors of the economy now. Um, if you look at these, the answers to these questions, so this uh, just correlates the management practice score averaged across all 18 questions, where a 1 is a, a very bad score and a 5 is a good score. These questions are highly correlated with things like productivity, that's the top left, growth, survival rates, and profitability. Now, this is not a causal relationship, but just showing you that the questions really have some, some, uh, some kind of uh, evidence or external validity, which suggests they're not just hot air. Um, you might say, oh, are these all culturally biased? Well, if you look at the correlation between productivity and management, that it's as strong in the UK and the US as it is in China, Japan, Southern Europe, or, or Northern Europe. So, you know, the relationship is there in almost in every country that, that we've looked at. So it does suggest that they're telling us something. Um, you might still say, well, is this really a kind of causal effect, or is it just correlated with some other thing we're not measuring? Um, one thing that we've tried to do to look at this in more detail is actually run some experiments. So um, in, uh, in India, we've actually run an experiment where we've taken textile firms outside Mumbai and uh, randomly um, given the firms a very intensive uh, free consultancy course from a top management consultancy firm for six months. So the treatment group have a six-month turnaround management program. The, uh, the control group just have a very light consultancy, just enough to get their data. And then we follow these firms now for up to two years later. And what we observe here is very large improvements of their profitability and their, and their productivity. Um, for example, uh, these are some pictures of the firms that we saw. Um, you can see that you know, there's a lot of uh, problems of management amongst these firms. This particular one is a lot of kind of very uh, toxic looking chemicals, which uh, you know, we're a bit nervous about getting too close to even to take the photograph here. Um, and if you look at some of the factory floors, um, before, we actually, uh, before we actually came in, they're very disorganized. There's kind of tools left on the floor. Uh, things are not being measured. So a lot of the management practices are just about trying to put in basic things to track what's going on and improve the performance of those firms. And they seem to actually be uh, effective improving their productivity. Um, okay, so you know, if you look at the effects of what's happened so far, it appears to be to raise the profitability by something like $200,000 a year. So it does seem to be there, there is possibilities, and maybe this is obvious to many business people in the audience, but you know, to a skeptical economists, there does seem to be ways of improving management and improving productivity. And the fact that we have this, now that some of this experimental evidence suggests that you know, they, they could be very important. So how does the UK do? So if we just rank countries by average management scores, then the UK is kind of in the middle of the table. So uh, you know, as you know, similarly to the productivity numbers, the UK is a long way below the US. Um, there's a kind of Premier League of management. This is a manufacturing um, where Japan, Germany, and Sweden do a lot better than the UK. The uh, middle uh, European countries are below, and the developing countries are, are, are somewhat towards the, the bottom. So kind of similar as, as, as you'd expect in, in the kind of, uh, kind of cross-country productivity numbers. 
But much more interesting to me than the averages across countries are what's happening within countries. So you might say, well, the US scores better than the UK. That's because every US firm is brilliant and every UK firm is rubbish. But in fact, there is just huge variation in every country you look at. There are great firms and really badly managed firms, no matter where you, no matter where you look at. So uh, you know, this just plots out, this gives you an idea of the distribution. So the ones are the, are the very badly managed firms, the fives are the very well managed firms, and this is the proportion of firms that are in each different group. So in all countries, there's a mass in the middle of averagely managed firms. But in all countries, there's usually a kind of tail of badly managed firms and a tail of very well managed firms. Um, what's kind of interesting about this is that if you compare the United States with many other countries, the US is kind of almost unique in that it has very few very badly managed firms. So just to blow that up, um, if you look at the US, what's different about the US is it actually seems to have an absence of these firms. You know, these firms who are not tracking what's going on, who are you know, not promoting people based on ability, who have no targets or completely ridiculous targets, those type of really badly managed firms, which to an economist should in some sense not exist, they should be driven out very quickly by competition, um, exist in most countries, but they exist a lot less in the US. So compared to the UK, for example, we have a, a much thicker tail of these badly managed firms. And in terms of explaining differences across countries, the, the size of this tail really matters. So having a lot of these badly managed firms is what's going to dragging many countries down um, and lifting, lifting other countries up, like the US, which doesn't have many of them. So how can we explain you know, why that happens across countries? I mean, the first thing you think of, of course, is maybe what's happening is that competition is much more aggressive in the US and is driving out these badly managed firms. So there's, there's at least two ways competition could be doing this. One is through selection. So by having more competition, the, uh, the poorly managed, low productivity firms can't survive and disappear in a kind of Darwinian fashion. And the other way um, could, also, could be through effort. So by having more competition, it forces or encourages the, uh, the badly run firms to actually try harder and, and improve themselves. So our work finds that both of those things are going on. There's a mixture of these effects going on. Um, if you did a very simple thing and just correlated the number of competitors, we just asked managers how many competitors you thought you faced with their average management score, there's a very strong correlation. The more competitors you face, on average, the better your management score is. And you can, you can have different measures of competition, looking at profitability of the industry or openness to trade competition. It's a very similar story. Um, the reason that we think this happens also not just through a selection effect, if you look at these firms over time, the firms which actually face increased competition, the very same firms improve their management when they face this increased competition. So there's definitely a kind of within-firm effect. Um, again, you could say, well, you know, is it really the competition causing the management, or does the management cause the competition, or is it some other factor? Um, how can you unravel these? Of course, that's always a big challenge in, in, in economics. Um, we think that you know, one way to think about this is to try and look at different experiments. So one thing that we, we did is think about a kind of quasi-experiment or a natural experiment, which, is, which actually you can use in the National Health Service. So in, we ran the same, the same kind of management questions in the NHS in the mid two, um, in 2006 and now 2009. Um, and since the mid 2000s, there have been various reforms trying to increase competition, uh, in particular by uh, hospitals which are geographically close together through a combination of patient choice, payment by results, and other kinds of reforms. Um, what we can try and do is, because closing hospitals is extremely unpopular, 
So, you know, I don't know if you remember 2001, the Kidderminster, part of the Kidderminster Hospital was closed and the minister lost his job over it. That actually gives us the ability to kind of think of a natural experiment. So, in other words, hospitals which are in marginal, politically marginal wards, because they're much less likely to close, means that you should expect to see more hospitals per head of the population in those, in those areas. And indeed, that's what you see. So, if you look at kind of hospitals per head, this is the raw data that's true if you control for other things. Marginal uh, walls have uh, many more hospitals than um, the, the walls in, politi in politically safe constituencies. So uh, this just shows you that pattern here. There's a lot more hospitals and those, those walls where Labour's winning margin was, was above or less than 5%. five um, sorry, it was, was between 0 and 5%, or they lost it, the Conservatives, between 0 and 5%. So the fact that you have this um, you know, random element related to politics, which gives you more hospitals in some areas than others, which has not to do with the health of the population, but due to these political boundaries, enables you to actually construct a kind of quasi-experiment. So in economics, it's kind of an instrumental variable approach, so it means almost randomly some places have more hospitals than others, is it the case you get better management and better health outcomes in those places because of that? And the answer is yes. So um, the first line here shows you that um, just the correlation, this is just what you kind of saw before for the manufacturing sector, when you have a higher competition or an additional rival hospital, you get something like a 10% improvement of management. If you um, take the uh, endogeneity problem into account, you actually even get a bigger effect. So in fact, we're underestimating things by not taking into account some of these other factors. And that's probably because, at least in the safe wards, it's the less efficient hospitals which generally get closed down. Um, you might say, well, who cares about management? What about some measure of you know, real outcomes to the patients? Well, one measure of outcomes is whether patients die or not in hospitals. So we took a measure which was um, the survival rate from, from heart attacks uh, in hospitals, and we found that uh, greater competition was associated with actually higher survival rates. So that's a very uh, kind of extreme form of performance or productivity, but competition seems to, be, seems to be associated with better outcomes for that. Okay, so competition matters. What else matters? Um, ownership matters a lot. So um, we, if we look at different ownership types of firms, then the uh, management practices in government firms is the worst of any ownership type uh, we looked at, which uh, may be unsurprising for those of you who uh, have had experience of some parts of the public sector. Um, more interestingly to us, the, um, if you look at another group which is particularly badly managed, these are what we call family family CEOs. These are family owned firms where a family member is running the company. So, um, you know, typically this would be a second or third generation person, and this is almost always the eldest son who's running the firm, primogenitor. Um, su surpri well, surprisingly, actually, or interestingly, there's a lot of primogenitor firms all over the world, especially in developing countries, a lot in, in the UK as well. And these firms seem to be very badly managed. I mean, an obvious reason for that is of all the people in the world who could be the best person to run your company, there is a chance as your eldest son, but there's probably a good chance that you know, one of the other 59 million people in the country might be better than your eldest son, and you should consider employing them instead. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, that's a kind of interesting finding. The, 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 the top firms, in terms of being well-managed, the ones with dispersed owners, public firms, and interesting private equity firms as well. So that also has some interesting policy implications. Um, multinationals appear to be particularly well managed in all countries. Interestingly, even in a country like India, where you, know, you think the environment is very tough, 
the uh, score of multinational firms is actually you know, almost as, as high as it is in, in the developed countries like the US or Germany or Japan, domestic firms being much worse managed. Uh, skills are also very important, not just of managers, but also of workers. So we found uh, a strong relation between the human capital of the managers with the management practice, maybe unsurprising, but also of the workers. It's very difficult to get well-managed, you know, get a well-managed firms if your workers are functionally illiterate or not, are not well-trained well or well-educated. And finally, there was also between some of these people management practices, you know, labour market flexibility was important. So if you have very tough onerous rules of labour market regulation that tended to press people management scores. So those are all factors which seem to matter. Taking three of them of the most important, competition, family firms and multinationals, that explains about half of all the variation across firms and across countries. So you know, if you looked at, again, the distribution, you could think of the group of firms which are kind of good domestic firms, many competitors, not family firms and multinationals, they have 6% of firms in the kind of tail of the distribution. The kind of other firms which face little competition which were family firms, uh, actually had 18%. So that's a huge number of these very badly managed firms in the tail of the distribution. Okay, so those are some of the drivers. Competition, human capital, ownership types, and uh, labour market regulations. And what implications does that have for structural reforms and long-term growth? Uh, what kind of things can be done? Well, obviously, thinking about product market competition is extremely important here. So the things I was talking about in terms of strengthening competition policy, um, the Doha trade around in the service sector, planning reforms um, in order to enable uh, easy, easier entry. Um, I think the big win is still in the public sector. So I think many of the uh, kind of reforms which have been tried to improve competition actually could improve performance of productivity in the public sector um, and to the extent um, you know, the government is, in, is, is, is building on those, I would, I would welcome many of those. I'm not convinced that some of those like devolving all power to GPs is, is the best way to do that, but certainly moving towards greater competition, allowing uh, expansion of, uh, of the success, successful is, is important, I think. Um, in the UK, um, I think that you, know, you might say, well, what can you do about family firms? Um, in, in, our, in one of our earlier studies, we found that half of all family-owned firms were run by the elder son in the UK, compared to only 10% uh, only, only in, in, say, Germany. Germans tend to get more professional managers in. Um, part of that might be cultural, but part of that is also due to tax breaks. So for inheritance tax, um, you can essentially have a 100% relief of inheritance tax if you pass your business assets through in the family. Uh, so this promotes family firms, and I can see no reason why we would want this distortion in the tax system, which both uh, reduces productivity, um, also you know, aids, you know, makes intergenerational inequality worse, and also you know, means we lose tax revenues when we can could, we could move them. I think this is an example of a more general principle that the Merleys Review has emphasized, that you know, it's less about the level of taxation, which is important for a successful economy, more about the structure of taxation. They're trying to remove distortions, I think, is important, and in this aspect, more generally true in, um, in, the, in, in getting economic performance improved. Human capital. The UK is uh, 
Although there's been improvements at the higher end in terms of college education, we have serious weaknesses at the lower end. So in terms of um, you know, less skilled people, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. So Richard uh, Layard and Hilary Steedman have emphasized the importance of building on apprenticeships to improve the skills of people in the low end of the distribution. Uh, I, I would support those. Also, there was also a program called the Educational Maintenance Allowance, which gave incentives for low income kids from low income families to stay in school after 16. That, I think, um, the evaluation suggested that was, was a successful policy, which unfortunately is one of the casualties of the, uh, of the cuts, which I think is something else which was, was to be welcomed. And many other things, you know, which time Professor me going to, but certainly openness to foreign investments, um, labour market regulation. One particularly important thing is financial market regulation. I, I very much worry that we haven't gone far enough in trying to uh, reduce some of the risks that uh, there may be a repeat of what's happened in the financial market. The problem of too big to fail is certainly still very strongly out there, and I'm not convinced that you know, the Basel regulatory reformers go sufficiently to kind of address that. Um, in terms of innovation, uh, many of the structural reforms I mentioned there will also help to boost innovation, such as human capital. I think in terms of universities and basic science, um, they're, they're, you know, I, I kind of, this makes, makes me very unpopular, but I think broadly speaking, um, the, the response to the Brown review of trying to uh, allow uh, universities to properly fund themselves to higher fees is, is feasibly the only way forward. I think there's also a problem of student visas, which is uh, you know, restricting the, the kind of growth of leading universities. But I also think that this issue about how we commercialize um, innovation is very important, so technology transfer is a key issue here. Um, R&D tax policies, I think the R&D tax credit has helped raise R&D, so I, you know, I certainly support uh, keeping those. Um, I think in terms of improving the supply side, that's even more important. So actually having a healthy number of people coming out as scientists is probably as, if not more important than just giving tax credits to business, which often can uh, be translated just through to higher wages of scientists rather than more scientists themselves. Okay, so in the final uh, 10 or 15 minutes or so, let me turn to uh, macroeconomic policy, and in particular on uh, austerity. So what do we mean by austerity? Um, take, the, the, take as a baseline Labour's uh, approach to the March 2010 budget, which was to um, have a degree of fiscal consolidation, in response to the high deficit, which was you know, as, you know, in large part a response to the, the recession. Um, the plan was, as you can see here, in terms of the, um, the consolidation, was to um, consolidate by about 5% of GDP by 2016 through a mixture of spending cuts and tax increases. Uh, something like £72.4 billion pounds of the economy was to be uh, saved through, the, through various budget cutbacks. So that's a very severe plan. Um, you can see that from you know that is what that was that certainly to the plan was actually to try and balance to reduce the structural deficit by something like half by 2015. The difference between that and the coalition's budget you can see here. Um, so the plan on the coalition's budget is to take 110 billion out of the uh, the budget deficit, a seven percent uh, consolidation in terms of GDP, and to accelerate that a year earlier to. Uh, 2015-2016. So, you know, the, just just look, it's worth looking at these numbers a little bit because these are this is actually the the, the biggest um, degree of budget consolidation which Britain has had since the Second World War. It's extremely uh, extremely rapid, extremely radical. 
um, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, we'll come on to. But the, the magnitude of this has uh, has has not been done in a, in a, in a generation. Um, the comprehensive spending review in 2015-2016 um, didn't essentially change very much. So you know, a little bit of change around the margin, but essentially the same the same story. So what are the costs and the benefits of accelerated austerity? Well, one of the costs, uh, or the potential costs, is um, a, a rapid withdrawal of demand certainly poses risk to the economy. So withdrawing demand so quickly from the economy uh, would be fine if the private sector can rapidly adjust to the fiscal shock. Some people believe that uh, you know, just by announcing these cuts, the improvements of confidence um, that the public should have that the uh, that the, the future taxes will be will be much much lower than they would have been otherwise is enough to speed uh, faster growth of GDP. Um, I, I think that's that is not a, a well empirically justified view. And the IMF certainly estimates uh, that that's that's not the case. There will be a reduction in demand. The only question is how severe that's going to be. Um, I think the risks are particularly severe at the current time because of the fact that many other countries are simultaneously having austerity programs and as we'll come on to monetary policy may be rather weak in order to adjust to that. Now how strong is the recovery? The last uh, GDP figures for the last quarter or two seem to be more optimistic but if you decompose where the growth of UK GDP came from, a lot of that came from the construction sector. Um, the last quarter's GDP growth numbers we saw were partly due to the kind of stimulus at the end of the last, the last governments. And if you look around the world, the recovery of many other countries like the US is, is very weak, many other countries in Europe having very severe austerity programs. So clearly there's risk to, to growth. Um, there's also a risk in terms of rapid um, fiscal consolidation having long-run effects. So you might think, well, don't things sort themselves out in the long run? Well, when you have a very short-run uh, fiscal contraction, which could lead to a, a further economic contraction or lower growth, this leads to scrapping of human and, and fixed capital. So um, by scrapping of fixed capital, is very obvious, but scrapping of human capital, an example of that is long-term unemployment. Um, as people stay unemployed for longer and long periods of time, their ability to compete in the labour market and therefore to keep, equilib keep equilibrium wages lower and keep employment higher becomes severely deteriorated. People lose their skills, they lose their motivation. You know, as, as, as Chris's work, Christmas Reeves' work, Richard, Richard Lair's work has shown, the long-term unemployed, um, you know, in some sense, are kind of removed from the labour market. And you know, even ignoring any issues of equity, um, that fact, um, that loss of that uh, human capital, the loss of um, those people, can have a very long-run impact on the on, on the position of the economy. So, you know, a very pessimistic view of what UK capacity, productive capacity, is. If you if you really do believe, you know, if you believe falsely that um, UK GDP had permanently fallen by 10 percent and therefore you have to have these austerity programs introduced, it can actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy by, in, by increasing this, this, uh, this scrapping of, uh, of people and, uh, and physical capital. Um, and also, I think when you're doing things very rapidly, I mean, a crisis does force removal of unsuccessful policies, which is a good thing. But it also leads to a bonfire of relatively successful policies. 
and um, you know, such as uh, the educational maintenance layers that I mentioned. When that's combined with other rapid changes, such as decentralization to GPs, creates a lot of uncertainty. Uncertainty can also be a cause of reducing investments and, and productivity. And whatever you think about you know, the, the fairness implications of those, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that um, in terms of the regressiveness of the budget, apart from the top 2% two, two of income earners, that the uh, overall package is regressive in the sense of the poor paying a larger burden of it than the rich. So are those costs worthwhile? What are the kind of benefits of accelerated austerity? And do we, do we, need, do we need to um, have the medicine in order to, uh, in order to uh, deal with those potential costs? Um, well, I guess the biggest, one of the biggest worries that the UK faces, you know, a Greek scenario, Irish scenario, you could say today, that the debt is kind of unsustainable. Um, and therefore, unless we do something about it now, then we're going to end up in a situation where debt, the debt is out of control. So I, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that you know, the re one of the main reasons that the deficit has increased so much and debt has, has increased so much is due to the global consensus and the concession that in order to reduce that, um, you know, we had to do various policy interventions that I've talk, talked about in order to prevent uh, rece the recession getting worse. And I think there's complete consensus around the political spectrum that there now has to be severe you know, consolidation um, with the balance towards spending cuts. The Labour government in March were planning to do that um, and the Conservatives were built on that. So the question is not do we do nothing, the question is how uh, fast and severe should the uh, uh, acceleration be? Um, you might say, well, okay, to what extent do we reduce borrowing costs? Um, so by paying our debt early, then we actually uh, reduce the interest costs that we have to pay on our borrowing. Well, you know, that is only true if the contraction is not more severe or growth is not slow. If growth becomes very slow, then of course, by losing the tax revenues that we would have got from employment and by having to pay out more benefits, this actually doesn't reduce borrowing costs by, by nearly as much as you might think. And I think it's worth taking a historical perspective over this as well, because although debt has certainly risen, so gross government debt has risen up to 79% predicted by 2011, up from 42% pre-crisis levels. If you look between 1692 and today, over the last 300 years, the average net debt to GDP ratio was about 102% higher for gross debt. So although the debt is high, it, you know, it has been much higher historically our debt has a, um, is, is relatively mature in the sense we don't need to go to the financial markets as often as other countries to roll it over. And the UK has not had a formal, has you know, arguably not had a formal default on this debt. So I, historically, so I, I think that you can exaggerate, although you should take the, the debt situation seriously, I think, it's, I think it has been exaggerated in order to, um, for effect, over the, over the, last, the last year. Um, a second argument is for credibility and, and confidence. So that it's necessary to do front-loading and to accelerate the uh, reduction of the deficit in order to uh, reassure uh, bond markets, which may, which may be behaving irrationally. You know, we're in, we're in the realms of market psychology here, which I, I don't feel qualified to, to discuss. But you know, my sense is that surely it's better to have a realistic good plan than fail to deliver an unrealistic bad plan. If we put down a plan we think we can't deliver in order to assure the bond markets, then I think that's actually going to store up even worse problems for our, ourselves in the future. But I, I, this is an area where people can, can clearly disagree when we're talking about psychology of, of, of the markets. Although so, you know, the, the thing can go in, in both directions, of course. I think that you know, in terms of the issue of productive capacity, although of course we have a lot of uncertainty over what our true productive capacity 
years. Uh, I think a lot of commentators have been too pessimistic. So as I've argued uh, earlier on in this lecture, I think there has been some uh, productivity progress since 1997. So I, I know my, my sense is that uh, the estimates of a very rapid and permanent loss of output of, of GDP of the levels of which people, some people have been claiming, I think, are somewhat exaggerated. And I think excessive pessimism can therefore lead to these potential self-fulfilling prophecies of excessive uh, cuts. Um, whatever line of the fence you, you come down on, I think you know we do need a plan B if things do go do go uh, wrong. The chances argued against having a plan B that the current plan is sufficient. I'm, uh, I, I, I kind of agree with the IMF in this regard, but I think we do need to think of a, a plan B. I guess the chances implicit plan B is that Mervyn, our former colleague, will come to the rescue and the Monetary Policy Committee will come to the rescue and if uh, growth is much slower than we think, the lower interest rates will be one way of, of dealing with that. Of course, Given interest rates are now very low, then you know that that seems to be much uh, less attractive uh, option. Quantitative easing is, a, is another way. This is likely to happen. It's happening now in the U.S. It's likely to happen in the U.K. I certainly welcome this, um, but I, again, I have some doubts whether quantitative easing by itself is going to be sufficient to deal with uh, with a, a severe a severe slowing of growth if that occurs. So the third plan, the third option is to say, well, we can just renege on our plans. So if things really do turn out badly, let's just not do what we said we were going to do and cut taxes or increase spending. Now, you know, to me that seems to be rather, you know, I, I would certainly do, rather do that than do nothing. But we know fine-tuning is uh, is very difficult to do when you're in, in the midst of, uh, of of severe problems. And of course, if you're worried about credibility, to say you are going to have a plan to, you know, reduce seven percent of GDP by 2015, and then to um, swiftly renege on that would seem to be a much more extreme loss of credibility rather than to have a more incremental plan and try and stick to that incremental plan. So what rebal let me conclude with what rebalancing is necessary. So there is rebalancing necessary in the longer run. So within the private sector, we have to think of a way of moving away from sectors like finance and construction towards manufacturing and high-tech service exports. And there are various ways to do that. I mean, one way, this will happen almost naturally through increased degrees of regulation contracting the financial sector. Um, but there's also policies which can speed up that process of creative destruction. So some of the policies I mentioned, I think in terms of uh, building and strengthening competition, um, improving the ability of uh, firms to contract and expand, uh, those are the kind of policies I think which will, should help the process of moving towards other, other sectors of, of the future. Um, I also think in terms of thinking of things about green growth and climate change, policies towards having a, a higher and more certain carbon tax combined with policies to stimulate more research and developments in the environmental sector are key, key parts of that. I think a rebalancing between the public and private sector is necessary, so clearly we are moving to an era where we reduce public spending, that's right, so that's going to be some degree of the shrinking of the size of the state. But the question is to what level? One of the problems in the 2000s was that um, there was an explicit policy made after 1999 to expand public sector spending in health, education, the police and other, other, other factors. This led to improvements in those sectors, maybe not as much as should have happened, productivity fell in those sectors, but that was an explicit choice. One of the problems was I think that taxes should have been risen by more to cover those spending commitments and re reduce the structural deficit and that was one of the failings I think of the, of the, of the last government. But the question about how far the state should be reduced 
I think is a fundamental political choice. It's not obvious to me that we want to reduce uh, the size of the state, say, in its role of education for people at school to a level way below what it was in, in, in the 2000s. I want to emphasise that this is really is, and the same is true of austerity, a political choice. It's a choice about what we do, not uh, an economic necessity. I mean, whether we move more towards a US model of a very small state or keep to the plan in the 2000s of having a more northern European model, I think is ultimately a political choice that we face. It's not something which is dictated to us by our economic circumstances. So in conclusion, um, you know, I think that if we think about the fundamental question about what the sources of productivity growth are, they are both technological innovation, which is well studied, but I think also management, which is relatively understudied. Management and productivity can be improved by microeconomic structural reforms, especially over competition, human capital, taxes, and labor markets. And in terms of the, sh the, the shorter term issue here of, of uh, what's happening in macro policy, I, I've emphasized that I think the austerity programs are a political choice, not an economic austerity have potentially long-lasting negative effects. We're living through an experiment and it's not a controlled experiment so I'm not sure we'll ever know the, the true answer for this but certainly we are living through very uh, interesting and uh, uncertain times. Um, let me end just with a, a kind of plea to researchers in the audience. Um, one of the good things about going out and talking to lots of firms, which is not something many economists do, is that you learn a lot of things about uh, companies. So one of the things that you learn is actually it's rather difficult to do things which you thought were quite easy. So for example, uh, defining ownership, which you might think is very easy. Um, one uh, manager we spoke to said, we are owned by the mafia. And the interviewer said, well, that's very interesting. I'll put you down in the other category, though I guess you could be an Italian multinational, which is how it was uh, classified. Um, now, Americans are very good at many things, as you saw for management, but they're not good at everything. So apologies to Americans in the audience. Geography is, uh, is one issue. So we asked uh, one plant manager, how many production sites do you have abroad? And the Indian said, well, we have one in Texas. Now, people in America say that's actually true, that Texas is a foreign country, but uh, education still needs something to be desired. Um, being married to an Irish woman, uh, I, I, I can't resist but putting this one up. Uh, we, asked, uh, we asked the manager, would you mind if I asked you what your bonus was? And the manager said, I don't even tell my wife how much my bonus is. So uh, the interview should not have said it. Frankly, that's probably the right decision. <laughs> Now, how do you retain your staff? Well, different ways. Americans have one way. One manager said he spent most of his time walking around cuddling and encouraging people. I don't know if, I don't know if we should, I should try that in the CEP. I might get a kind of you know, sexual harassment suit upon me. Uh, my staff tell me I give great hugs. And here's one from the French secretary. You want to talk to the plant manager? There are legal proceedings against them, so hurry up. So if I could just beg one more minute for Stuart's time. Of course, I have to end with all lectures, of course, on the important topic of sex. So um, let the, the, these are some of the quotes we got. This was an Australian interviewer, uh, a female interviewer, talking to a, a British uh, factory manager. Uh, your accent is really cute, and I love the way you talk. Do you fancy meeting up near the factory? Now, what girl could resist? Uh, but this girl did. I'm sorry I'm washing my hair every night for the next month. <laughs> now, of course, things are different in India. So in India, here's the traditional chat-up. And this, uh, the woman I should mention who's doing the interview was, uh, was a kind of high-caste Brahmin uh, uh, interviewer who had heard this several times before. So she asked, the production manager asked you, are you a Brahmin? Interviewer, yes. Why do you ask? And are you married? No. 
Excellent, excellent. Well, I was looking for a bride, and I think you could be perfect. I must contact your parents to discuss this. Uh, I believe now she is the uh, plant manager of the, uh, the factory in, in Mumbai. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. Uh, fabulous lecture, John. Thank you. Um, so we've got 20 minutes for questions. Um, uh, we'll take them in probably, well, see how many people raise their hand, but if you could just keep your questions short and say who you are. Thank you. We'll start with a gentleman at the front, and then we'll go to a gentleman at the back. Take two or three. Yeah, Bernard Casey from Warwick University. I'd like to ask, uh, because I didn't quite understand your view about whether um, education, particularly higher education, produces a private or a social return, and um, as a consequence, what are the implications of this for university funding? You seem to be welcoming Brown, and that is press, uh, the, 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 the idea behind this is that almost all the returns are private, and yet you listed what appeared to be um, potentially um, social benefits um, from um, high levels of graduates in management and amongst staff. And if so, what are the implications of that for university funding? And the gentleman at the back. Yeah, just behind you. And then, then we'll take you, we'll take those three together. Is, is it awesome? Is it okay. Um, uh, John, thank you very much for, for that lecture. I should explain, I'm Anthony Bainbridge. I teach management at the Bath School, and we've met before once or twice. Um, I, I have to say, I, I'm particularly interested in your productivity argument, and I want to just raise the question of apprenticeships particularly, because the, it seems to me that the human capital aspect of all this is absolutely critical. And I'm struck time and time again by an almost unbridgeable social gulf between kids who leave school at 16 with an ambition to become apprentices versus those who go on to 18 with the ambition to go to university. There's no, th no, no difference in the quality in, by any sensible measure between the two cohorts, but, what, but most of our national efforts seem to be focused on what happens to the HE cohort. And, and indeed, your own paper talks about measurement of productivity through R&D and through higher degrees and papers published and so on. And yet, your more recent work emphasises the human capital aspects. And I speak from an engineering background, so I'm part of the STEM contingent that was mentioned by our chairman right at the beginning. Can, can we find ways of making the transition into and through apprenticeships and the, ex the, the, the significance of adding value as soon as, as a younger cohort can to our productive capability uh, because if we could then that would do more than anything else I think to improve the productivity strand of your argument Just take one more in this round a gentleman here, thank you Thanks very much I'm uh, Ron Agblay, uh, Treasury, um, but asking the question of personal capacity, John. <laughs> um, just about, uh, um, you, I know you said you didn't want to get into speculating about market psychology, um, but to what extent do you think if there hadn't been the sort of spending review response um, to the UK's fiscal position, do you think that the country's uh, credit rating may have been in jeopardy? Um, I know we'll never know the counterfactual eye, what would have happened if, had we not, but just your thoughts and observations on that would be quite interesting. Thanks. Uh, thanks for those, uh, those questions. Um, so on, on the higher education one that Casey asked first. Um, so I, I think that the, um, most of the returns to a college degree, like one from LSE, are private returns. I think there is a social 
return components. But I think it's the minority of that. So I, I think there should be some degree of subsidy. But I don't think it should be the majority of the subsidy we get. And so I think that um, moving to a system where there is a relatively small subsidy, I think, is, is the, right, the right policy. Um, I think the outputs of higher education are also research outputs. And I think that those have a bigger social spillover. So I think in terms of the, um, the general benefits of the production of knowledge of science, that uh, has a much larger social benefit. So therefore, that does need a much more uh, generous subsidy because the wedge between the social and the private is much greater. I think as you um, arguably go down to um, you know, school education or in preschool education, the arguments for social benefits become much stronger and the equity arguments become a lot, a lot stronger as well. And this kind of links to the second question on, um, on, on apprenticeships. Um, I think I, I completely agree with you. I think there is a, you know, there is a, a real challenge here. I think the, the, the reason that it's very important to think about ways in which you can raise the skills of people at the, the lower end is that it simultaneously can increase productivity, but also has positive equity effects as well. By increasing the supply of, by moving people who have very low skills to higher skills, you actually reduce inequality as well as increasing productivity. So that, I think that has a potential really big win there. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a policy in place, and I'm not quite sure whether it's the victim of the cuts or not, to expand apprenticeships uh, very significantly. I mean, Hilary Steedman, who's here, has been one of the prime movers behind that. Uh, and I think that, that attempt, and, and she's written and, and CP's written it, to, to do that, I think, you know, seems to be exactly the right way to go. Now, you know, I think there's a lot of challenges there. I mean, a lot of the challenges of getting employers sufficiently interested in that process and so on. But I, I think having you know, serious improvements of the human capital of those people um, through you know, longer courses rather than very short, minor courses is, is, is the right way. And getting them locked into experiencing what it is to work in the workplace is an important thing. I don't think everybody should feel that the only route to go through is you know, full-time formal education between 16 and 18. I think having that as a viable option is true. You know, so I, I, you know, that's the challenge. I think you know, we have a lot less, I think, uh, empirical evidence on the effects of things like training on productivity. We have some evidence on the wage reserves which seem you know, good for apprenticeships relative to other, other factors. Um, I've done some work on looking at training in general and I found that does have very large effects on productivity and much more, not just to the firm which does it, but also more generally to the economy. So, you know, I, you know, I, I think we need to do more work on that area. That's a very important area of research ahead. And in, in, uh, in, in return uh, to uh, Ron's question on, on um, from, from the Treasury. Um, you know, my, you know, again, this is, this is it's going to be hard ever to prove that. You know, the, the, the policy which was in place under the March 2010 budget was a very tough policy to, to reduce spending and to uh, try and you know, have a consolidation. I think that you know, would, have been, would have been sufficient by itself to turn the debt around. Would that have been enough to convince the market? It seems that there wasn't any panic going on amongst the rating agencies or the, or, or the marketplace. Um, there doesn't seem to be any evidence in the data that if we had kept that plan or a credible plan, that would have that would have not been a sufficient outcome to deal with the problem. So my sense is that we would have been all right keeping to that policy. Um, you know, I, I can't prove that to you, uh, but my sense is that you know I didn't I didn't think that we needed to have gone to 
the speed of adjustment that we went to in order to maintain our credit rating, in my, in my opinion. We've got time for another round of three questions. More than three. We'll start with the young man at the front there. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Varun Dev. I'm a student at the management department at LSE. I just wanted to find out uh, when the data was shown about the domestic companies being uh, rated well or poorly managed, was the size of the firms and the number of and number of employees and the salaries for the managers kept at constant? And do they in any way affect the quality of the management in those firms, especially in countries like India and China? And do you think that increasing the salaries for the managers or limiting the size of the firms would increase productivity? Thanks. Gentlemen, just there. I think you had your hand up. Yeah, the mic's just behind you. Other side. Do you uh, have a sense? Uh, my name is Mark Montgomery. I teach at a small college in the American Midwest. Uh, do you have a sense that possibly the budget cuts are simply to cut the budget, an opportunistic uh, way to shrink government and, and, and the short term cost be damned? Can you just slide the mic along about six to your left? There's a guy right in the middle. Is anybody else burning to ask a question to John? The gentleman at the back will take you, and then can you deal with four, John? Um, um, Martin Lacey, just an interested member of the public. Um, when you were talking about productivity, do you think that some of the policy decisions around older workers in, um, and keeping older workers in the workplace, like abolishing the default retirement age, will be a general boost to productivity, or do you think that it could hamper it in the long term, potentially? Um, Chris Weber from the Centre for Cities, a think tank uh, in London. Um, I was interested in, in your point about rebalancing. Uh, when you think about rebalancing economic growth across the country, I know a lot of your colleagues at the LSE are not persuaded that government should be trying to pursue that objective, that there aren't, doesn't really have many levers to do that. But if you could explain why you think uh, the economy needs to be rebalanced between different sectors and what levers you think government has realistically to try and achieve that rebalancing. Okay, uh, these are all good exam questions. I should be writing these down for my, my, my students. Um, so on uh, the, the, the student from the management department first. So uh, the, the, the data I showed you were kind of uh, adjusted for size in the sense that we control for the size of, of firms. So you'd see the same things if you didn't control. You know, if you, you can put many other things into, the, into looking at the effect of multinationals and that effect persists, so you know, age, skills and so on. So that, that effect, is, the correlation I should say, is definitely there. Um, larger firms tend to be better managed. Um, it's not clear what's cause and what effect because you know, it might be that you know, you're, you know, if you're very well managed you get to be bigger. So it's not, or it might be you know, if you're large you can pay the fixed costs of, of uh, of being managed, so both things are, prob are probably are probably going on. The size, I think, there is a definite, you know, size uh, management correlation. That's interesting. Much stronger in some countries than others. So in the U.S., it's much stronger than say it is in, in India, and that does suggest that you know, in, in it's much easier to grow to be a successful firm in the U.S. than it would be say in India and China, and that's something about you know the way that the market is not working as well in, in India and China as it is in the United States on management salaries. Um, you know, there's a big debate over you know managerial pay. Um, the I, I can tell you the following facts, and I'll leave it leave it to you how you interpret it. So, if you look at the management quality and the pay of the manager, then there are correlations, positive and very strong. So, 
better paid manager, better 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 paid managers tend to have be, be better quality managers. Until you control for size, when you put size in, then large firms have better managers and they pay the, the managers more. But there's no direct effect anymore between um, how much you pay the manager and the quality of and the management quality measure. So you could say that, well, you know, <laughs> you will, we're paying all these guys lots of money for no good reason, uh, which there may be part, there may be some truth in that. But a lot of that might be just happening through size. So that's the. I, I think you know, in general, there's certainly an issue that you know, pay, especially in the financial sector, are completely out of control in uh, you know over the last the last couple of decades. I and mean, if you look at the uh, inequality, um, the top. What the increase of the top one percent, uh, which was which was you know, very dramatic, up to two thousand and seven, almost all of that, the vast majority of that, was the bonus of bankers. So that's a huge, huge effect, which I think a lot of it was clearly not just due to people's quality, but also due to uh, inefficiencies in the way that they were paid. Um, the um, there was a question of is is this opportunistic behaviour to shrink the size of the state? My my, my view is that there, you know there are, it's certainly that's partly true. I think the 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 way that we hear this as reported in the media is often from governments as if there's no choice. It's like economic arithmetic that we had to move to take 110 billion out of the economy by 2015, and I, I think that's not true. I think the the uh, is a political choice to do that, and maybe it's the right political choice to do that. But I think that it's uh, it is a choice. We did, you know, there was nothing I think which forced us to do that. Um, from from my view, from the economic environment we were in, uh, and I think that the um, the choice to do that was because of a policy to shrink the size of the state. I think it's perfectly legitimate to do that. I think you know, if I think there is nothing wrong with saying that you know, we want to have a much smaller state and a much you know smaller amount of health and education spending from the public sector in this country than than, than we've had we had in the 2000s and move towards the U.S. Model, more towards the U.S. model. But I'd rather have that argument explicitly rather than kind of have that under the uh, disguise that this is, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. This is what we have to do because the economy is left in such a mess by the last government. I think that's, uh, you know, that, that isn't the case. Older workers, um, I think that, you know, one of the things is, you know, talking about debt, they, you know, the big challenge we face is to try and get more old workers back into the workforce. So this ridiculous thing we have that, you know, you have the sharp retirement cliff People stop working, you know, once they hit a particular age. It's just ridiculous in two senses. First of all, people have been getting the life expenses been going going up by two years every decade since the Second World War. People are living longer; they're living more healthily as they get longer. So, in fact, you know, I, I welcome the government's decision to increase the retirement age and do that sooner than it, than it was going to do in the last government. I think that was entirely the right thing to do. Um, I think that uh, you know trying to make the retirement age more flexible in the sense that people kind of scale down as they get older rather than go off you know, this sharp cliff is, 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 is the right way to try and change the way that we work. The effects on productivity are much more ambiguous. So, you know, um, on the one hand, people say an aging workforce is going to be terrible for productivity, but in fact, as people get older and more experienced, they get generally more productive. Now, it comes a point at which that's no longer true. 
But um, a lot of estimates, you know, put as, as I get older, I become to believe this more and more. As you get older, your productivity doesn't decline as rapidly as you as you as you might as you might otherwise think, and that you know by having more experience in the workforce, this actually can be in, in many in many many industries actually a way of maintaining. Uh, maintaining productivity. So I think the productivity impact is, is quite ambiguous. I mean, in our management work, we found the following. We found that um, if you look to the raw correlation, uh, firms with older workers, management quality tended to be lower. So, you know, aging firms, lower management quality, which looked bad. But then again, when, if you control for the age of the firm, then that relationship disappeared. So old firms, on average, tend to be worse managed. Old workers themselves, it didn't make so much difference. So it suggested to me that you know, management is, is, not, is, is not just about whether your workers are young and old, but how you manage to motivate them and inspire them and keep them going and organize them. So you know, I, I think that's a kind of optimistic story in terms of older workers. Um, rebalancing, um, there is this interesting thing about how you rebalance across, across the country. Um, the, you know, I think it would be a healthy thing to actually have a have a have have more rebalancing. I sense certainly Northern Ireland and the northeast of the state seems to be you know excessive you know excessively large and th this will be rebalanced. I think one way to uh certainly help some of this would be we have this kind of pay system in the u k in large parts of the public sector, but people are paid basically the same regardless of where they are so there is a London allowance say for nurses, but it's pretty pathetic. You know, it's like something like 13% compared to a 40 or 50% difference in the cost of living. So when you have that type of situation, it's unsurprising that it's very hard to recruit nurses to work in London hospitals. So we will have a very high level of turnover. We rely a lot on overseas agency nurses. And we, I've shown some of my work that actually leads to very, you know, much worse health outcomes in hospitals, including more people dying. By the same token, it means that in places like the Northeast, where the public sector wages are very high, compared to the outside labour market, you end up with queues of people desperate to work in these places. And you know, I think a natural solution to that would be to have a, a wage system which reflects the outside labour market. So you effectively have you know, um, higher wages in, in London and the South East and much lower wages in the North East and, the, uh, and areas where the labour market is weaker. So that, you know, when I was in the Department of Health, I was uh, trying to push those things which made me extremely unpopular with uh, the trade unions, and I'm sure <laughs> will make me no more popular. But I, I think, you know, those are the kind of policy reforms, I think, which would help rebalancing geographically, and uh, I think we should, we should do them. Brilliant. Um, I think we're going to have to end because we, we, we've actually reached 8 o'clock. I'd like to thank everybody for, for coming along tonight. We've got some excellent questions, I think. Thank you, John. Um, I'm the, new, I'm the new head of the Research Ethics Committee here, so I learned a lot as well myself. Uh, but Don't ban our research. I particularly want to thank John Van Rienen for giving us such a good talk tonight. Thank you, John. Thank you.